0: for Israel. Professor Dershowitz will give a brief introduction before the film, and then he'll be available to speak uh, once the film is complete. And as you know, Professor Dershowitz is the Felix Frankfurter Professor of Law at Harvard University. I'm not going to go over the whole uh, biography, but as you know, he's the author of many books, uh, numerous articles, and op-ed pieces. And I think in terms of the work of Misa, his work is very important in terms of being one of the first scholars and legal um, scholars and, and uh, public figures to look at how anti-semitism has changed over the years. We're no longer facing an anti-semitism that's classical or the type of anti-semitism that many people see and understand as the anti-semitism of 70 or 80 years ago. The world has changed, anti-semitism has changed And as we know, and we'll see in the film, the new type of anti-Semitism has as as its core a dehumanization, a delegitimization, and the double standards when it comes to viewing Israel. And increasingly on campuses, anybody associated with Israel are the targets of this new anti-Semitism. And the film and Professor Dershowitz's work is, is really important at this moment in history. So we're very honored to have you this evening.
1: And this is a good beginning, let me tell you why. Uh, as I walked in, I picked up the leaflet that was being uh, handed out. And I always have leaflets whenever I speak. And usually they're pretty ad hoc and I'm pretty extreme. I found this leaflet remarkable because I with virtually everything in it. Uh, as I told the young man who was handing them out, I could literally sign it. I mean, of course I disagree with the former, to the extent they're being quoted correctly. If the former Sephardi chief rabbi Murdoch Elio said there is absolutely no moral prohibition against the indiscriminate killing of civilians, then he's an idiot. News, a rabbi is an idiot? What are we doing here? Comparing idiots? Is our rabbi stupider than your imam? I mean, of course we're talking about, in Israel, an imperfect democracy. Many of the things that are said out of this are absolutely right. And Israel is absolutely wrong in its actions in discriminating. I don't ever try to make the 100% case for Israel any more than I try to make the 100% case for America. I try to make the consensus case for Israel as an imperfect democracy, as a democracy that needs considerable improvement. The argument I make, though, is that Israel should be criticized in proportion to its faults, and in proportion to comparative faults of Israel and other countries. And that's all I really ask for, the application of a single standard uh, to Israel. Uh, A couple of things. Why do I make a film or write a book called The Case for Israel? Nobody writes books called The Case for France or The Case for Canada. Obviously, the reason you have to make the case for Israel is because Israel is subjected to this double standard. And we'll talk about the extent to which it is because Israel is the Jew among uh, nations. I don't want to be apologetic about the film, but I want to be very clear, this is not my film. I didn't make this film. I am the interlocutor in the film. I interviewed people. But if I had made the film, it would include younger people. It would include people of more diverse backgrounds. It would include more criticism of Israel. I made this film, or I participated in the film, really to inspire you, particularly the younger people who are here today. You have to make the films. You have to make the YouTubes. You have to create the social sites. You have to get on Facebook. You have to create groups. You have to figure out how to make the case for Israel, the nuanced case for Israel, to people your own age and of your generation. My goal whenever I speak at the university is simply to bring complexity and nuance to an issue that is too often discussed in extreme terms. Usually when I walk in the pamphlets, Are things like Dershowitz and Hitler just the same, the only difference is the name? Or comparing Jews and Zionists to fascists? And extremist Jews on the other side who attack me as much, by the way, as extremist Muslims. Uh, How can you give up the West Bank? God gave us this land, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The arguments that are so often made on college campuses are impossible of resolution and do not lead to any prospects for peace. And I honestly believe that complexity and nuance and understanding the narratives of both sides are absolutely essential to making compromise of peace. Um, And so what I'd like to do is watch the film, Watch it critically. And then uh, let me tell you what I think the rules I'd like to have for the question and answer First of all, hard critical questions first. So don't raise your hand to tell me, oh, what a nice film, or right, I agree with you. You can you know, write me a note. Uh, uh, I want criticism. I want people who are critical. I want people who have provocative uh, points to make. And it doesn't have to be a question. You don't have to have this statement with the fake question mark at the end of it. It can just be a statement. It can be a criticism of a statement. And then you get to make a follow if you don't like my answer. So I want to make sure everybody's satisfied that they've had a chance to confront and that all sides are going to be presented. This is going to be an exercise in full and complete free speech. The only limitation is one minute. You get one minute to make your point, and then you get 30 seconds for follow. So think of hard questions and watch the film critically. I won't say I hope you enjoy it. It's a film that you know is not designed for enjoyment, but uh, I hope you learn something from it, and I hope you're provoked into making a better film. Thank you.
0: Made by Gloria Greenfield, uh, who's not here this evening, and Professor Dershowitz was actually the first uh, William Kruisoff uh, lecturer. It was a special lecture we had two years ago, and we're very honored that Professor Krusoff is here with us of uh, Yale University. So welcome. Enjoy the film. So no okay, no positive questions. Okay. <laughs> but, there's <laughs> always a but. Since the film, a lot has happened. Iran went through elections, elections were stolen, and many of the people, the experts in the film, were very strong and unequivocal when it comes to Iran and radical political Islamism, and the government of Iran supporting terror. So, my question is why does there seem to be almost an acquiescence? There was an acquiescence. In the aftermath of the elections, Western powers seemed to hesitate to support the opposition, people risking their lives fighting for human rights and freedom on the streets of Iran. And interesting enough, President Obama, in his Cairo speech, spoke to the Islamic world, to the Arab world, as he put it, and spoke about people taking up an anti-apartheid or civil rights type of movement. And days later, millions of Iranians were doing exactly that. And there was almost silence from the West. Why do you think there was this silence, and now that the negotiations are going on with Iran over its nuclear energy program, and everybody knows, as it was said in the film, they're seeking a nuclear weapon, and they've threatened Israel unequivocally and repeatedly and consistently. Why is there seem to be this when it comes to Iran, and what's your reading of the situation?
1: Well, I support the Obama administration's policy toward Iran up to now. There was a very interesting piece in yesterday's Wall Street Journal which actually fooled me uh, I thought it was a, a real piece about uh, the Security Council voting to require Israel to its nuclear weapons in the United States and not vetoing it, but it turned out to be a fictional account of what could happen in the future. It's very dangerous for a country like the United States to encourage dissidents unless we will back the dissidents. We have seen tragedies over and over again. When the United States encourages dissidents, the dissidents then put their lives in the line. The repressive government goes after the dissidents, and the United States backs away. It happened in Cuba during the Bay of Pigs. It's happened in other Central American uh, countries. It happened in Greece many, many years ago, and it's happened in other parts of the world. The United States was not ready to invade Iran, and therefore I think it was smart not to do too much to encourage. By the way, if the United States encouraged the dissidents openly and overtly, it would weaken the dissidents' credibility in Iran. What about the nuclear threat? Let them be absolutely no doubt about it. Nobody with an IQ above room temperature believes that Iran is not developing a nuclear weapon. Uh, there are some people who do uh, believe that, but they have motivations, or they're lying. Uh, And uh, they are, you can take that to the bank. And every Israeli knows that. Uh, British intelligence, uh, French intelligence, Israeli intelligence, America's lack of intelligence resulted in the 2007 National Intelligence Assessment, which was a fraud and a lie. You know that when they released that report in 2007 saying that Iran, had stopped developing nuclear weapons. That was months after they had secretly discovered this new place near Kul, which they now know could only develop nuclear weapons. And so I wrote my first piece about the National Intelligence Estimate calling it dumb Intelligence. I wrote a subsequent piece called Dishonest Intelligence. It was one of the worst intelligence reports ever issued by any country in the world. Likely to increase the chances of a military confrontation. It is encouraging Iran to go forward with a nuclear program. I don't know for the life of me why the United States intelligence came to this false erroneous conclusion. Iran is going to get bombed. Sanctions will not stop Iran from getting a bomb. The UN will not stop Iran from getting a bomb. Already we're hearing people saying, well, we have to learn to live with an Iranian bomb the way we learned to live with a Soviet bomb. As Dennis Ross put it, there's an enormous difference between cold, calculating Soviet Union and at least some Islamic apocalyptic leaders who would like to see the 12th Imam. And look, Rafsanjani, the great liberal, the good good guy in Iran, said in an interview in the Washington Times several years ago if Iran develops a nuclear bomb and drops it on Tel Aviv, we'll kill three to five million Jews, they will retaliate. Drop the bomb on Tehran, kill between 15 and 20 million Muslims, and the trade off will be worth it, he said, because we can destroy the Jewish state, but they can't destroy Islam. There are many more of us than that. You cannot allow people whose leaders have that kind of an attitude to have access to a nuclear bomb. What are the options? Israel may have to take unilateral action. I hope it won't. It would be catastrophic. Uh, But, you know, in the situation, nuclear Iran, the options aren't good, better, best. They're bad, worse, worser, worstest, intolerable, and catastrophic. And uh, an attack on the nuclear reactor may be worser, but allowing Iran to develop a nuclear weapon may be even worse than that. And so we're going through horrible choices of evil. The one thing that would make me break with the Obama administration, it is a line in the sand. If the Obama administration ever accepted Brzezinski, or even Gates, who is now the Secretary of Defense's, implicit view that they would stop Israel from defending itself by a preemptive or preventive attack on Iran. They might criticize Israel, but the idea of preventing Israeli jets from overflying Iraqi airspace would for me be a of ally, something where I could not support our administration in that respect. Why do I support the Obama administration? For me it's easy, I'm opposed to the settlements. I've been opposed to the settlements in 1973. I think Obama's right in opposing the settlements. I think he's right in putting pressure on Israel for the settlements. For me, the line of the sand is Israel's security. And up to now, at least, the Obama administration has done nothing to undercut Israel's security. For example, they criticized the settlements Never, they criticize, as far as I know, the security barrier. That's the settlements, that's part of the West Bank. They understand the difference between civilian settlements and the need to have a security fence. That's the distinction I make as well. Obama was very strongly in support of Israel in its attempt to go into Gaza and prevent rockets. And said when he went to Steyruth, if they were firing rockets at my children, I would do everything in my power, and I expect Israel to do the same. The Obama administration immediately rejected the horrible, despicable Goldstone Report, which is a pack of lies, just a pack of deliberate, willful lies about you know, Israel and Israel's actions. I'm talking now about my colleague in Harvard Law uh, Goldstone, who's a pompous windbag, and looking only to promote his own career, and using his own Jewishness. We all agree. Uh, using his own Jewishness as a sword Against uh, Israel. The only reason he was picked is because he was a Jew. To have the name Goldstone. Better if it was Goldstein, but it's Goldstone. <laughs> okay. So they had to settle for Goldstone instead of Goldstein, but they needed to have a Steen or a Winston, couldn't get me, so they're going to get somebody like that. He gave the hashi, the certification of Kashrit, to a trade report, to a, a, a report which is just filled with abominable lies. And as Benjamin Netanyahu correctly put it, I wrote a piece about this uh, before he said it, the worst thing about the Goldstone report is it makes peace more difficult. Because remember, when Israel left Gaza, the position that Prime Minister Sharon took was, don't worry, if they fire rockets, we can go in and stop them. You can't say that anymore. Goldstone and the UN have said Israel has no right of self-defense. Rockets have to be allowed to land on ben Airport. Why? Because the only way to stop the rockets is to go and attack the sources. Where are the sources? Behind civilians. You will inevitably kill civilians. And that, the Goldstone Report says, is a violation of international law and the of War. So it has made it much harder for the Netanyahu government to withdraw from the West Bank. And so the Goldstone Report is a barrier to peace in much the same way that Jimmy Carter has been a barrier.
0: Thank you, and just to do 30 20-second sure. going back to Iran, uh, from what I'm reading these days, it's not only Israel, it's Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, and other nations in the, in the Middle East are very apprehensive of sure. uh, not only Iran, but the seemingly the indecisiveness of the Obama administration.
1: What but they would be it? the first to condemn the Obama administration and Israel if they took any action. Look, we're talking about peaking hypocrisy. Look at what happened in Gaza. While Israel was in Gaza, they were getting telephone calls every day from a box. Kill Hamas! Destroy Hamas! Don't stop! Go further! Go further! Go further! Please! End Hamas! And as soon as Israel leaves, the Palestinian Authority, Abbas, is the first one to bring it to the U.N. and say, War crimes! War crimes! Let me tell you why the Palestinians withdrew war crimes. Because they knew, if I were the lawyer for Israel or anybody else, the first person we would call as a witness would be Abbas. We would subpoena old phone records. We would find out how many times the Palestinian Authority urged Israel to continue its efforts. The same thing is true now. Saudi Arabia says Israel, go bomb but we'll condemn you. Jordan, go bomb but we'll bring you in front of the United Nations. So you're right, there's a lot of hypocrisy, and Israel has to make its own decision. It never surrendered its sovereignty when it joined the United Nations. Um. Two quickies under a minute. Um, I've heard that the Carter Center has received lots of money from our sources. Absolutely. If so, that would raise mega questions about Carter's objectivity. Could you comment on that? I don't think you need any and sources that? of money to raise questions about Carter's objectivity, but it helps. OK. And the second question I have is about something in the movie that uh, Saffian called the internment camps of in World War II, which were an ugly part of American history. But I think he's wrong to call them concentration camps, because that is a blurring uh, and associating to the camps in World War II. I agree with that. I agree with that. In okay. fact, the interesting thing is that I use the term concentration camps, because that's what they were, but I don't use them to refer to what was going on in Europe, what was going on in Europe with death camps, or extermination camps, or murder camps. Uh, but the concept of concentration camp developed in the early 30s. Um, when, in fact, they were used to concentrate people. The Japanese were They were detention centers. You're right, though. Yeah. You know I mean, it's taken on uh, a meaning that shouldn't be used. It's like what happened in you know, the Zara stores. Do you see what happened in the Zara stores? They sell this beautiful stuff. They came out with a pocketbook bus. We can have a swastika on it. And so you can imagine some people said, we're not going to shop here. And they said, well, it's only a design. And that the Native Americans used it and all that. Well, not after the Second World War. You don't put Swastika on pocketbooks, and today they withdrew that particular item. Uh, but uh, so there is connotation as well as just direct meaning. So okay, that, thats my point. My thirty-second point is that you know that by your age and so forth. But when you're speaking on college campuses, I think you're right. the distinction may get lost. I think you're right. Yeah. With the gentleman. Hard questions, let's get some hard ones. Um, Is the person who gave out the leaflets here to ask some questions, anyway, yeah. I was gonna ask about the
2: Kassam rockets. I know uh, I've had this question for a while. I don't wanna um, repeat the charge of disproportion, which I think is something that isn't labeled against other countries and is only used for Israel, but I do wonder, if when, when you look at how many people these rockets kill and what damage they're doing to Israel, and then how many people are dying as a result of Israeli attacks or you know defensive attacks in Gaza, um, I want What is your argument for why it is good to? Um, kill the people necessary to remove the rockets? I've never argued that it's good. I think if I were an Israeli political figure, I'm not sure
1: I would have waged the Gaza war. I'm not here to say that that was the right war, or even the Lebanon war. I think reasonable people could disagree about whether either the war in Lebanon was tactically advisable, or the war in Gaza. Did Israel have the right to do it? Of course they did under principles of proportionality and principles of international law. Over 8,000 rockets. They're all anti-personnel rockets. Not a single one has a military object. Over 8,000 rockets were fired. I've been in Stingbrook. I've been in the south of Israel. As Phyllis Chester correctly pointed out, virtually everybody in the south of Israel is suffering from post-traumatic stress syndrome. Kids can't go to school. No country has to accept that. The United States wouldn't accept it for three minutes. No other country would accept it. Israel waited year after year. Just before they went in, they finally said, look, we're going to make a deal. We're going to give you a carrot and a stick. We're going to open up the Rafa uh, card. We're going to let in a lot more humanitarian aid, and please stop sending the rockets. They increased the rockets because they wanted Israel to attack. Israel is in a trap. Uh, I wrote in one of my books, The Case for Moral Clarity, that the Hamas has figured out a way to do this. They call it the CNN strategy. I call it the dead baby strategy. They want Israel to kill Palestinian babies. That's their object. So they can hold it up in front of TV, and they can win the debate. It's very interesting. I had a debate with Zagbi during the war. And if you listen to the debate, it's clear that I won. But if you watch the debate, he seems to win. Why? Every time I speak, I show a dead baby in the arm of a mother. You can't hear what I'm saying. It drowns it out, even though there's no sound. And Hamas understands that. As a Western diplomat said, Palestinian terrorists have learned the arithmetic of death. They benefit every time they kill an Israeli, and they benefit every time an Israeli kills a Palestinian civilian. How do you fight that kind of war? Don't ask Goldstone. He wouldn't have the vaguest notion. He doesn't even mention these things. He acts as if Israel went in. You know, if he had written a piece on proportionality, it would have served some useful purpose. There was an interesting piece in the New York Times today after the Goldstone Report called A Wasted Opportunity, by a peace in Israel, a former editor of the Arts, who said, what a great opportunity it would have been to really have an interesting discussion of proportionality. Uh, Professor Aaron Araq, the former president of Israel quote, teaching such of course, at Yale Law School. I know there are some of the students of this here tonight. Those are complicated questions. Yours is a good question. The Goldstone Committee didn't even ask that question. They jumped right to the fact that they think that Israel's purpose was to kill Israeli, was to kill Palestinian civilians. You saw this guy, Shkedi, uh, in the film. He's the former head of the Air Force. When he came to the Air Force, Israel was using targeted killings of Palestinian terrorists. And the ratio was approximately one to one. For every terrorist killed, there was a civilian casualty. Shkedi said that's intolerable, although it's probably better than any other country, better than the United States, better than Great Britain and Afghanistan and Iraq. He said it has to be improved. He developed different munitions, more sophisticated munitions, better intelligence. Different rules of engagement. and By the time he left office on the eve of the Gaza war, the ratio changed to 29 terrorists for every one civilian killed. Now, no country has ever come near that ratio. And yet, General Schetti today cannot walk the streets of London without threatening being arrested. You saw the guy Benjamin in the film? He was threatening with arrest in South Africa. Hey, Barak, you saw him in the film? He was arrested in London last week. Um, General uh, Moshe alone had a canceled trip yesterday to London on behalf of charities, because he's been threatened with arrest for war crimes. Head of a mosque can walk openly in the streets. The head of Hezbollah can walk openly in the streets. The president of Libya, who ordered the destruction of with plane, something Americans, many students, he can walk the streets. But the general, who brought the ratio down to the lowest ratio of civilians for terrorists, in the history of urban combat cannot walk the streets. That is an abuse of human rights. That is an abuse of law. And I don't care whether I was Jewish or anything else. As somebody who cares about human rights and cares about the law, that is unacceptable.
0: Gentleman in
2: the um, so we were talking about internment camps, right? right. Um, obviously the horrendous, horrible things that happened in World War II, and the shameful ones that happened in the United States. Um, I'm not going to say, I'm not going to talk Gaza. I'm not going to relate that to World War II. But, there is a concentration of civilians in Gaza that do not have access to food, to clean water, to various necessities of life. Now, I would call this at least some form of starvation camp or something you want to imagine. it.
1: Oh, yeah, it's to imagine. Every single word you said is categorically and factually false. Every single word. Let me go through the one by one. The situation in Gaza is far better than it is in Al Rish, which is in Egypt. How do I know that? Because you remember a few months before the war, some of the citizens broke down the wall. They went to Al Rish Wow, this is going to be paradise. They rushed back so fast. They said, we have clean water in Gaza. We have gasoline. We have air conditioning. We have all the necessities of life. Israel has never, ever under any circumstances imposed any kind of starvation the humanitarian crisis in the Gaza. Go to the Gaza, you'll see. Life in the Gaza is better than it is in almost all the Arab countries. What does Israel know? It has stopped the import of luxuries. It has stopped the import of many kinds of soda, many kinds of candy, of paper diapers, which make it a little bit more difficult. Yes, they've imposed a blockade. I disagree with blockade myself. Disagree with it. But it is not a humanitarian crisis. Nobody has suffered irreparably as a result of it. Oh, people die. People die in Jordan. More people die in South Jordan. If you take South Jordan, the area between, say, 50 miles south of Amman and the area of Petra, life is far worse there than it is in Gaza. By the way, life, it was far worse in Gaza during the Egyptian occupation between 1948 and 1967 than it is today. All right. Let's assume, however, you're right, that life is intolerable and unacceptable in Gaza. Remember when Israel first left Gaza, they didn't have any closing of walls. They didn't have any boycott. They didn't have any blockade. They said Gaza live and thrive in peace. They left behind their greenhouses. They left behind their agricultural settlements. And they said that the Palestinians just don't fire rockets. Palestinians fired rockets. The Palestinians killed the people from the Palestinian Authority. Hamas killed the people from the Palestinian Authority. Only then did Israel and Egypt conduct the blockade. Why is Egypt let off the bucket? Egypt has closed the Gaza from the Rafah point. There are two points of entry, one to Israel and one to Egypt. Israel is closed it, And Egypt is closed in. By the way, when Israel tries to open it, what does Hamas do? Hamas shoots at and fires rockets at the actual checkpoints in order to discourage Israel from sending in the food because Hamas is trying to generate a humanitarian crisis. And are things great? No. In fact, what we're seeing is the difference between East Berlin and West Berlin. What Najeeo is doing is trying to create in the West Bank or West Berlin. Life's good in the West Bank. Life's better than it's ever been. Economy is thriving. Stock markets are doing very well. Uh, Schools are open. Uh, It's better than it's been for years. In fact, that's probably the reason we're not getting peace movement. Life's good in Israel. Life's good in the West Bank. So, when life's good, nobody wants to sacrifice too much for peace. Now, Daniela's goal is to show the West Bank and show the Gaza and show how much better off you are making peace with Israel than calling for its destruction. Um, and so, I think this humanitarian crisis is way, way, way exaggerated. The media has brought it to it. I don't blame you. You read the media, we all read the media. But go to Gaza, actually see it. See the food on the shelves. There is no risk of starvation. Sure, the hospitals allow us. To. Why? Gaza got enormous amounts of money from the international community before it started firing rockets. What did it do with the money? It didn't put it into infrastructure, it put it into rockets, it put it into the pockets of its leaders. And so, you know, if there is a humanitarian problem, problem, not crisis, it is a self made one.
2: Follow Okay, so follow up, um, I, I do just speak with you in saying that Gaza is better off than other Arab countries. Although I don't think compared of Arab countries is any really way valid because Arab countries are a terrible state of affairs. I think you're right in criticizing them. Um, but to move forward, I mean, I, don't, I don't know about the facts. Uh, your, your facts, I think, are probably wrong. Um, <laughs> I, I, I'm sorry to say that to you, but Oh, no, you can check. About. I mean, you can check them yeah, out. One should check. Yeah. For All right, example, cool. <laughs> um, for example, Israel now only allows only 12 different fruit and vegetable types into Gaza. 12 different, well, uh, can you imagine and what would happen in the Warsaw ghetto? They only allow 12 or 15 different types <laughs> of <laughs> vegetables or fruits.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I think apart this venue, we only get 7 or 8 different kinds <laughs> <different laughs> <types> of <vegetables>. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: Is that there's a large malnutrition rate in
1: children in Gaza.
2: That's a funny tragedy.
1: There's a lot of malnutrition all over the Arab world because the, the Hamas does not know how to allocate its resources. You're going to have malnutrition if the money gets spent on building rockets rather than on feeding young people. Yes, you're going to have malnutrition. If Israel had half the money, it would feed the children twice as well. Um, Last point. We, yes, yeah, no, you sure, can Yeah. yeah it yeah, um, you can get the last
2: one. Thank you. Um, so, in Gaza, there's also very little circulation of currency, all these things. I mean, these, these are things that people should look at. I'm encouraging everyone to uh, check the facts. Yeah, On that one. And, um,
1: so all mm-hmm. things, all that saying, look at the facts and then you'll know. I, I, really don't to say, because once you do, you don't know. In <laughs> <laughs> fact, I agree with that, yeah. <laughs> excuse me, we're going to take the You're next question. <laughs> <laughs> excuse, <me, laughs> excuse me, I'm going to choose the next uh,
0: questionnaire. You don't mind? Yes. Is uh, Professor Moss in the back here? Moss yeah. Dundell? Hi.
3: One of the persons interviewed in the film was Benny Morris. Yes. And Benny Morris has indicated that there's a global jihad taking place. Uh, In terms of the film that has been produced, it's an excellent legal and rational presentation of the case of Israel. But does it include the concept that there's a global jihad taking place? That Europeans are concerned with the Islamization of Europe that Sharia is moving into England and other countries in Europe, that it's also moving into the United States. Is there that recognition that Israel is seen as a crusader state, representing Western democracy and Western interests, and therefore the attempt to stop Israel is not just to anti-Semitism or to kill the Jews, but an attempt to stop Western civilization? I, I think
1: there's no question about that. And one of the great tragedies is that the Palestinian people historically have been secular, Uh, Sure, they have the Grand Mufti, who obviously was a Nazi, and, you know, the one thing pro-Palestinian people hate to hear about is the Grand Mufti. That's why you have to talk about it every day, and every time there's a debate about Israel and the Palestinians, you have to remind everybody that the origin of the Palestinian National Movement is the Grand Mufti, who spent the war years with Hitler, who wanted to promote a Holocaust, who was declared a Nazi war criminal at the close of the war, and who was the most popular Palestinian. Palestinians picked the wrong horse in the First World War and in the Second World War. It's amazing they even got the offer of statehood. Nobody else who picked the wrong horse got statehood. And if you compare the Palestinians today with Kurds, still don't have a state. With Tatar's, still don't have a state. Tibetans still don't have a state. The Palestinian claim for statehood is about 11th on the list in terms of moral priorities and get their first and the United Nations. And on university campuses, you, know, you can't get a rally on university campuses for uh, Tatars, for, for, for Crimea, for uh, uh, many of the other displaced people, for Armenians, for uh, so many other displaced people. Palestinians are all people hear about. I support a Palestinian state, not because I think they deserve it, because I think Israel needs there to be a Palestinian state. I would, In terms of desert and morality, a Kurdish state is far more important. Uh, uh, Other states, a Tibetan state, is far more important than a Palestinian uh, state. But uh, for Israel, a Palestinian state is very important. I don't agree with you that we're seeing Islamic Jihad in the United States. I think the United States is at peace with its um, Muslim population. Its Muslim population are good and decent and excellent citizens. Many of them are my students. Um, I don't see any indication of uh, jihad catching on in the United States at all. Sure, there's a problem in, in, in parts of Europe. There are all kinds of problems uh, in Europe. But interestingly enough, Hamas and Hezbollah are really somewhat separate from the global jihad. And it's a somewhat separate uh, problem. And Israel's concern is with its local antagonists. I, I wanted to take the uh, follow up over there, because I, I know she wanted to follow up with his question. And I want to make sure that it's treated fairly. Yeah, I think this is going to be the opposing points to view. Then you say okay. the last question. Oh, okay. You have Can I ask a question?
3: question or should I do the follow-up? Either way. Okay, I'll do both. Okay. Okay. First of all, um, 80% of families in Gaza now rely on humanitarian aid. A what? 80% of families in Gaza rely
1: on humanitarian aid. or I what?
3: 80% of people in Gaza rely on humanitarian aid. Why? Why? Yeah. They had an
1: opportunity. Israel left. There were greenhouses. The there were opportunities to develop an economy. The fact that they're all on goddamn welfare really shows something. They're in refugee camps. That's all self-induced. Be self-reliant. Build a state. Do something right. Work instead of going out and make rockets. I'm not feeling sorry for people who rely on the United Nations. Build a state. Do something right. Nice.
3: Let move on to my question. Wait, so, yeah. <coughs> um, I'm a Palestinian citizen of Israel. Uh, my grandparents were internally displaced from Yafa to Nazareth, and from Ein to Bisan, where um, my grandparents' uh, his land in Ein was was uh, confiscated by absentee property law, uh, despite being present by all means. And uh, now uh, there is a kibbutz on his land that uh, produces, I think, the most almonds in Israel. Now, uh, I'm not the only one. 24% of uh, Israeli citizens are not Jewish. And um, now, I cannot... Excuse please ask your question.
0: We're running out of time. Yeah,
3: okay. Um, What I'm trying to say is that Israel, by definition, and uh, it's not a democratic state. You have the... the, um, the right of return law that says that any Jew can return to Israel. You know but I cannot marry you know somebody
1: from Allah you know wants. that the Palestinian Authority has a right to return law? Is the Palestinian Authority a racist state? Yeah, but my land mm-hmm. is in mm-hmm. Jerusalem. No, 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 no. Put that aside. The Palestinian Authority has the law of return. China has the law of return. Germany has the law of return. If there's one country in the world that is entitled to have a law of return, It is certainly the one country in the world whose citizens were murdered, 6 million of them, because no state would accept them. Palestinians are today accepted in many parts of the world. Now, the claim about property is a reasonable claim. Uh, 800,000 Jews have similar claims in Yemen, in Iraq, in Egypt. Uh, Over a million uh, Sudeten Germans have claims like that. Uh, Pakistanis, uh, Bangladeshians, and Indians have claims like that, Cypriots have claims like that. But in every other situation, the refugees have moved on. There is in life a statute of limitations. We're 50 years beyond 1940, we're 60 years beyond 1948, get over it, move on. The Jews who survived the Holocaust got over it. They don't walk around with keys to their homes in Poland and in Lithuania and in Yemen. They live in the present and in the future. The time has come for the Palestinians Look, I'm not Obama saying this, and I don't agree with what I'm but why did I say the Jews were on from the Holocaust? They do. They do. They go to state. They won a Nobel. A won a Nobel Prize, uh, uh, Holocaust survivors. Uh, you know, they're inventing, they're doing productive things. You know, the Palestinians tragically are living in the past. They're ruining their refugee camps. It's not all their fault. It's not all their fault. Many of the other Arab states are using the Palestinians as pawns by keeping them in refugee camps instead of integrating them into the population. And by the way, I didn't hear the Palestinian grievances between 1948 and 1967 when their land was taken away when they were occupied by the Jordanians and when their land was taken away when they were occupied by the, by the Egyptians. They seem to be more concerned about being occupied and their land being taken away. And remember, there wouldn't have been a single refugee if the Palestinians had accepted the 1948 UN resolution. If they accepted Israel as a state... So we're going to be a single refugee the
0: refugee problem is the fault of the fact that arab states only made Israel. that's the truth isn't it so on this note amtrak is not going to wait unfortunately we have to cut the evening now because of the train schedule as well thank you very much having a very good lecture about Iran ran by uh, Dr. Brandon Friedman, presented at, at the McGillow Center, everybody is welcome. And once again, thank you for coming and thank you, Professor Moshe.